Kids, you can head off to Kid Zone at this time. You ever have moments when you realize that what you believe really makes a huge difference? Just before we go to a time of prayer, just this past week in conversation with someone and they were talking uh, with someone in a, in a class that they were with and they had, uh, they had lost someone that was really important to them. Died quite young in their 40s. And they didn't believe that there was anything after death. And their child was asking, you know, will we see this person again? And they said, nope, that's it, nothing. And I thought, wow, yeah, that, that is, I talked recently at a funeral that, uh, you know, what people believe, and some people believe a materialistic worldview, and that's death is the end. There's nothing else, and it breeds a sense of futility. Scary. Yeah. And it's just a reminder that we have a, a message of hope, and there's some people that I've been missing lately. One of them, Eric Keller, <laughs> as I saw Jenny this morning. I don't know, it's just, it's like, oh, I miss Eric. He was such an encourager all the time. He had stories to share out of a lot of adversity and what God had done in his life. Uh, my mom would have been 90 years old at the beginning of September as well. Passed away 10 years ago, uh, shortly after her 80th birthday. And uh, just reminded, thank you, Jesus. Revelation says he, he took the keys to hell and death. Remember, one of my professors, he's saying, I'll never forget a black preacher talking about that. And he said, he just dramatic, so alive. And it's like he was, that moment when Satan realized the keys, he stole the keys. To all those people he had chained up. That came to mind this morning as well. How glorious it is that he holds the power and the keys over hell and death. Let us pray in the light of that. Oh Lord Jesus, you have, you have put us here to be salt and light. And there are moments in our lives when you help us to remember that it makes a lot of difference. That what you did, the hope that you gave, when you conquered the grave, and when you opened that wide invitation, Lord Jesus, on the cross, your hands were spread apart. But they were opening up, Lord, to invite a whole world of people to come and to confess their sins, to admit that we have been in rebellion against you and and yet that you loved us so much that you came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through you. That death might no longer be the end. And Lord Jesus, you broke out of the grave by the power of your spirit, the first in a long line of those, of your followers, Lord, to be released from death and to know eternal life. And Lord, today we just want to thank you for that. Some people whose presence we miss. But we know it's just for a little while. 
And that one day we will be reunited and we will worship and celebrate forever. Thank you. Amen. Well, today we're starting a, a new series, and I just want to give you a little bit of background as to, to why First Peter. You know, we live in a generation in, in which our elders, at least, can remember a time when Christianity was still a major force in the Western world. But that day has largely passed, hasn't it? Our society is, though, is still living off the moral capital, I would call it, of that time. But our culture has, not, has largely become not simply increasingly pagan, but what Paul Williams has aptly described as pagan with an anti-Christian flavor. With vanishingly few exceptions, says Williams, it is now not a cultural advantage to be known as a Christian or to engage in God talk in these societies, but rather a positive hindrance to communication, likely to be misunderstood and possibly detrimental to one's reputation. Now, I admit, if we're honest, some of the anti-Christian flavor is because some of the church's past sins have come back to haunt us. Participation in colonialism, clergy abuse that was covered up. But the tendency to highlight the sins, the church's past sins, is also accompanied by a great neglect and forgetfulness of the rich legacy of Christian influence in our world. Hospitals, schools, universities, human rights, social welfare, the list goes on. The tendency has been to highlight the negative and eliminate the positive, and it has resulted in, in what many see as a strategic crisis for the church in the West. The narrative of an inevitable decline of religion popularized by outspoken atheists is a historically inaccurate piece of wishful thinking on their part because that we as Christians, dare not internalize that message. For if we do, it will not merely weaken our faith, but it will prove catastrophic for our society. If we lose confidence in the gospel as good news for our world, what hope is left for it? Even the outspoken atheist Richard Dawkins has gone on record in recent years to say that a world without God would lead to a moral decline because it would give people license to do really bad things. Yes. Right? As I was thinking about the changes that have happened in recent decades, I went back to the Bible looking for a letter or a book to enlighten, equip, encourage us for such a time as this. After all, in a post-Christian and even anti-Christian culture, we need the wisdom and example of believers who have been there, lived that, done that, and can serve as examples and guides. And as I was reading 1 Peter, it began to grow on me. Let's uh, read. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter, almost near the end of your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to do the first two verses today, give a little background on it, it's set up for the series. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, the Apostle Peter had a God-given mission to lead and to shepherd believers he describes as exiles scattered throughout the provinces of the Roman Empire. Now, it was clearly no small task to try and oversee churches in such wide geographical area and living in challenging circumstances. And I say challenging because of the very fact that Peter refers to them as, did you notice, exiles. Exiles. Later he will call foreigners or foreigners and exiles, strangers, some translation have it. It implies that they have experienced major disruptions and losses in their lives, economically, culturally, socially, and they were having to cope with new levels of insecurity and hostility far greater than most of us, not all, but most of us will have to face. And the occasional references Peter makes in this letter bears this out. And it's worth just looking at them briefly. In chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about how for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, he refers to their being falsely accused of doing wrong and tells them in verse 15 that it is God's will that by doing good you should silence this ignorant talk of foolish people. And in chapter 3, verse 9, he will say, Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. The implication being that's what they're getting. You know, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. And in chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, he again urges them to respond to their critics with gentleness and respect so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, if you suffer as a Christian, I don't think this is hypothetical, <laughs> okay? It's when a when. Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name, that you're taking it as his representative. And again, in, in chapter 4, verse 12, he said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. And that last reference to fiery ordeal has that has come upon them has led some to wonder whether Peter has in mind the wave of persecution initiated by Emperor Nero in AD 64 that swept across the empire for at least four years that resulted in the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul who was beheaded in AD 64 and Peter crucified upside down AD 68. But clearly Peter is still alive and writing, right? And uh, he will make a reference to Paul in his second letter. So I'm assuming Paul was alive then too. So while fiery ordeal can be used literally, okay, of a kind of a persecution, it is also used metaphorically of testing and refining of metals that undergo that. And that is the emphasis that Peter gives to the the various trials and the testing and refining of their faith that he will say is happening through these challenges and the, that, that he is going through. One of the recurring themes in 1 Peter is that Christians will face suffering. And he will say, so don't be surprised by it. And be ready, he will say, to make the most of it. 
which is the positive side of the opposition that Peter wants his readers to know. Suffering and opposition provide us with unique opportunities, he will say, to glorify God and bear witness to him. Don't hide your light. Let it shine in those moments. And if we wonder, where, Peter, did you learn this? We need to look no farther than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who taught, who modeled this firsthand, and who changed the entire course of Peter's life, life and many others. Peter introduces himself in, briefly in verse 1 as the apostle and apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a brief but clear way of giving his credentials, his authority. Now, while the term apostle, you know, just at its base meaning, literal means sent, one who is sent, Peter is one who is sent by Jesus. And what he says about the promises and commands of God are therefore coming from the master himself, Jesus For it was Christ who personally called and commissioned him, who sent him into the world and gave him authority to carry on his mission. And this letter is to be read then not as Peter's opinion or or well-meaning suggestions, but as a message that he is faithfully passing on from the master himself, of which Peter is an, an emissary or an ambassador. And Peter, he knew firsthand the life-changing power of Christ. You know his life, you'll know that he had been a fisherman by trade. And he was probably in line to take over the family business until he met Jesus. Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses tell the story of how they first met in Peter's boat. Jesus asked if he could use it as a pulpit, uh, you know, out on the water there. And how at that meeting... And Jesus gave this, he heard him preaching, and then he gave an invitation to Peter to fish for people instead. And that meeting utterly changed the direction and purpose of Peter's life. And he left behind his fishing boat and nets that day, and he went on to become Jesus' personal representative and a prominent leader in the early church. And given the significance of Peter's leadership and influence in the early church, it is perhaps surprising that we have so few documents from him in the New Testament. First and second Peter. And second Peter isn't very long. Though Peter is likely the source of most of the material that we have in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, not Luke, Mark. Mark was a close associate of Peter and uh, seems to have written down, got his sources mainly from there. But while Peter's written contributions are small, Martin Luther was right to describe 1 Peter, he said, as one of the noblest books in the New Testament and a model of excellence on par even with Romans and the Gospel of John. And Luther said this because he believed it contained everything a Christian needs to know and follow Jesus fully in the world. And for 2,000 years, believers around this around the world have rightly read this letter as God's word and experienced its life-changing power across the ages. Indeed, Peter wrote and sent this letter to believers scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at a map, it's a vast area, almost the size of our province, okay? And, but their geographical location it matters 
Because he's picking up on language of how the Jewish people were the scattered, the diaspora, all around. And he's saying, you are now the people of God scattered. But it's not as important as what he says about their spiritual and social status. Spiritually, you are God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Wow. You ever had that experience, especially as a kid? You know, they have two captains, and then they start picking teams. And you're not chosen first or second. I don't know. I was the little brother, so it usually came to the end, and it's like, oh, you can have Dave. <laughs> kind of a leftover, you know? Um, so, no, you were elect. You were chosen. Really big deal. And by the way, when you hear the word election in the Bible, it has nothing to do with politics or voting. Okay, its background significant lies in the Old Testament, where it refers to God's sovereign choice to bless Abraham, a nobody really at the time, and make him and his descendants to be a source of blessing to the entire world. Israel, Abraham's descendants, are often called God's chosen people. But God makes it very clear in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 9, that they were not chosen because there was something special or they were choice, you know? That's the way we choose people to be on our team. So why then would God elect or select some of us to be his chosen people? Totally because of his mercy and his grace. It's not in something in us, but it's in the character of God. That's where it starts. And many of you probably know that the doctrine of election, like every truth about God, involves mystery and sometimes stirs controversy. You know, since God has saved, has chosen to, some to be saved, has he chosen others to be lost and damned? Well, I'm aware of the various positions and opinions on this issue, and I have an opinion as well. But I'm not going to get into it this morning. Because I want to focus simply on the point Peter is making and why he makes it. As my longtime professor, Dr. J.I. Packer, helpfully pointed out years ago, he said, in Scripture, election is a pastoral doctrine brought to help Christians see how great is the grace that saves them And to move them to humility, confidence, joy, praise, faithfulness, and holiness in response. And this line, I remember he said, it is the family secret of the children of God. That is, you were no afterthought. You were no unwanted pregnancy or accident. You discover, oh, we've been waiting for you planning for you. We do this even a little bit as parents, right? Long before the child comes along, first hint we get of it, right? They don't know any of how all the preparations and waiting and anticipation that have gone into it. Afterwards, you know, on our children's birthday, we tell them the birth story so that they get a bit of a feel for that. That's what Peter is wanting us to get, I think, here. Which is precisely, you know, it brings... Election brings comfort and joy, which is precisely what the believers Peter is writing to needed because of the social implications of their having become associated with Christ. 
They have become exiles and foreigners in human society, in the places where they live. Some of them in their family, in their workplace, in their social circles. They are now being ostracized. Precisely because they have embraced God's invitation to belong to him and identify publicly with him in baptism. As commentator J. Michael Ramsey Michaels explains, their divine election has thundered or torn them from their social world and made them like strangers or temporary residents in their respective cities and provinces. They are strangers and exiles not by race, birth, or circumstance, but because divine election has estranged them. Probably seen the experience of a, of a player who has left to join an opposing team. Or a transgender person who decides to trans-de-transition. Or a big drinker and partier who gives it up and is seen now as a turncoat, no longer an ally but an opponent. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he will say, they are surprised that you no longer join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Like, what's happened to you? So when the social reality and implications of being a follower of Christ cost you in big and in small ways, remember who you are. God's elect. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Notice how in beautiful divine harmony, the triune God planned, secured, accomplished our great salvation. Peter first mentions the foreknowledge of God the Father to make the point that God took the initiative and chose them before they had done anything to deserve it. The origin of their salvation rests entirely with God's initiative. Paul will say the same thing in, in Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that faith, it's not, that isn't of yourself either. It's, it was a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's all grace. And second, God's acceptance of them was by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit... You see, is the one who transfers us out of the realm of evil and sin and death and into God's kingdom, God's family. Sanctification, sanctification is both the Spirit's initial work of setting us apart for God at our conversion and also initiating us, growing us into this whole new way of life. Which brings us to his third point, the Christians are set apart to become, he says, obedient to Jesus Christ. God's plan for us is to be a little bit like Jesus, right? No. God's plan is to become the full measure of Jesus. You know that? That's a, lot, that's a lot of pressure if we had to work ourselves up to it. But he says, no, I'm the one. That's my goal. When I called you, like I didn't set my, my sights low. My aspirations are sky high for you. 
until we all reach maturity in the faith, Paul will say, and grow into one mature, we grow to become like Christ. And this is made possible because, he says, believers have been sprinkled with his blood. Now, I don't know about you, the only time I have any get sprinkled with blood is when I've killed a salmon on the river, and uh, that's about it. It's not that, you know, it's not that great of a scene there. But the background to this phrase, instead, it lies in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24 is a good example. Because that's where Israel has just entered. They've come out of Egypt, this new life with God, free from the old oppressor. And they are now, it's really a wedding ceremony because they are now becoming God's people, joined to him till death, do, not even till death do his part forever. And there's a ceremony there, a covenant between God and his people. And in that day, that was sealed with a ceremony in which, because it was a covenant in blood, okay? And in which the people were then sprinkled with the blood of a sacrament, right? And they've got to pay something that's, you know, equal to how great that offense was. Commensurate, right? Equal to that. We often even want a little more, but, you know, an appropriate price. And Peter uses that practice and imagery to speak of how, you know what? Somebody needed to do that. There was a price that needed to be paid, but God paid that himself for us. And he uses that practice and imagery from the Old Testament to speak of how Christians have become reconciled to God by being sprinkled with the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus himself, who sacrificed himself to save us. As one writer put it, he paid a debt he did not owe to cover a debt we could not pay. And the effect and conclusion that Peter wants this brief but deep dive into their salvation is to confirm that they are truly God's chosen people in an intensely personal relationship with him that a hostile world can never break. So while geographically and socially they are exiles and strangers within their own families and and home communities, they are homeless in that sense in many ways, vulnerable like, like Father Abraham was. When God called him. But spiritually they are God's chosen people. In whom and for whom he has invested everything he has. He is all in on this. And as believers this is our foundational identity. It's the source of our security in a very insecure world. Because if before creation of the world God chose you. And he sent his son to die for you. He is hardly going to let you go now. He will use you where you are to shine for him. That is good news, friends. (laughs) I lost some news. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As they're coming up, maybe you haven't experienced this firsthand, what he's talking about. Then the invitation to you is to just surrender your life over to him. Say, I've been in control of my life, God, and it's not going the way that, I, that it needs to go. I want to surrender. I want you to take over control because those are the best hands that I could be in. And maybe for you, otherwise, you've made that commitment, but you, 
you haven't realized, I need to grow in this. This is great news. I, I need to learn how not to shy away in the midst of opposition, but, but to realize God put me here for a purpose, and he's going to equip and empower me for that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you today for this letter that was penned for such a time as this. Lord, we thank you for how great this salvation is that you have given. That in a world, Lord, where it is at times hostile and in rebellion against you, Lord, uh, that is nothing new to you. We shouldn't be surprised, Lord Jesus, you, the world tried to do its worst to you. And yet you didn't step in in judgment of the world. You opened your arms up and you took everything all of the worst into yourself so that we would know that you are totally trustworthy. Lord, Lord God, you have been given such a bad rap by so many people and sometimes, Lord, we are to blame for that and we confess that. But rightly understood, there is no better hands to be in than yours. And we thank you that you invite us to surrender our lives and to keep doing so into your care and that you will equip us, that you by your spirit will work in us to become more and more like your son. For your glory and for the good of the world. Amen. And that just remi I remember the first time I clapped in church the way Bob does. I remember, like, like this, like you're at a concert. And I thought, I've never clapped like that in the church, only in concert. And I thought, well, why shouldn't I clap in church like that? This is definitely worth praising and celebrating. So thank you for that, Bob, and uh, to the worship team. I'll close with the uh, benediction, Second Peter. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By getting into community groups. No, it doesn't. Okay. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.